I think part of the frustration comes in because, you know, you have the man, quote, unquote, bringing home the bacon and the woman keeping the home, which is great. If you can make that happen, that's a wonderful thing. But as we know, we can't always do that. And I watched these two women try to branch out and get jobs, and that didn't happen right away. So they found other wacky ways to make some money, some spending cash of their own, so we could go camping as a, as a vacation, you know. We lived on a shoestring, but we didn't know that we were on a shoestring. We had a great time doing it. Hi, this is Stephanie Fallon. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have author Diana McDonough. Her new novel is called Stuck in the Onesies, and it was the result of her experiences growing up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in the 1960s and the 1970s, when social issues were taking center stage for the nation. The novel focuses on the relationship between two women, Barb Kincaid and Ellie Riley, as they face a sea of changes, both within their worlds and without. So welcome to the podcast, Diana. Thank you for having me, Steph. One of the questions that I sort of had right off the top was the title, Stuck in the Onesies is kind of a... Right. A lot of people, and I struggled with the title. It had three or four as I was working on it, but um, I struggled with this one because a lot of people want to associate it with baby clothing of onesies, but that's not what it's about. What it talks about is the game of jacks. And okay. And if you remember the game of jacks or ever played it when you were kids... You know that if you get stuck in the onesies on the first try, then you're forever playing catch-up throughout the game. And that's the metaphor that runs throughout the whole book. In the first chapter, your characters are playing jacks. Right. It was something that we did a lot. And my mother and her friend were, were very good at it, and we had competitions, and this lasted throughout the childhood. So it was just one of those things that I never forgot and something I wanted to weave into the storyline. I played jacks a couple of times. I remember very clearly the first time I played jacks and something that people may or may not remember if they've have you ever played jacks at all, Stephanie? I am trying I you know, if I it's not coming to me if I did. I, I have think, a set in the car if you want. To. Did, yeah, let's let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> There's something really weird about a six year old explaining to a four year old how jacks works. I mean I may not have been four, I may have been five, but I wasn't six and like, I knew how baseball worked, and I knew how well, football worked, but, like, the the notion of why not just pick, the, pick them all up as many as you can? And if you don't know how jacks works, you bounce the ball, and you pick up one, and you bounce the ball, and then you pick up two, right? You yeah, I just figured that out, and through. I'm 46. <laughs> but, like, for the last 40 years, it's been a little unclear to me how jack works. Well, I'm hoping we'll revive it. Maybe we'll start a new revolution. So you mentioned that your mother and her best friend kind of serve as the character templates for Barb and Ellie. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about using that inspiration? Well, they were two housewives. I remember a lot watching Donna Reed and the Cleavers and all of that when I was a kid. And uh, things were very much that way back then. And as I grew up and I watched my mother and her friends evolve they did so in a lot of different ways, and you'll read that throughout the book. Um, they were stay-at-home housewives raising kids, but yet there was never enough money, so they were always trying to figure out ways to do that. And if you ever watched the I Love Lucy show, I lived it pretty much. <laughs> you'll right. see that in the book. Yeah. And so when you talk about evolution, I know that there are a lot of themes that 
pull into Stuck in the Onesies, you grew up in outside of D.C. in the 60s and 70s. So there's a lot of, you know, the, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the feminist movement. Also, you know, you had the, the Vietnam War. So you have these two women who are housewives just living in this environment that's kind of a cauldron just bubbling with all of this stuff going on. That's right. I realized as an adult when I looked back on my childhood growing up outside in the D.C. suburbs in the 1960s was really a unique time. As you said, all of these issues were coming to the surface, and it was pre-9-11, so you had more access to things inside of D.C., and it was our normal. You know, we, I guess I just assumed everybody grew up with marches going on down the street and around right. the corner and all this mess happening. But not everybody did. They saw it on the 6 o'clock news, but we actually saw a lot of it where we lived. Saw the smoke from our front porch when D.C. was burning, that type of thing. Also, with the, with the racial thing, I remember growing up actually in a house that was very prejudiced, thinking, scratching my head as a kid, going, this doesn't seem right. The two characters are very different. One has deep Southern roots and the other does not. So there's a big difference in the way that they look at things, but you also see the evolution of the characters throughout the 20 or 30 year period of that lifetime and how they changed. And, and I saw it in myself and how I changed as an adult and as a young woman growing up. Being separated one generation, you're able to make assessments about things that seem so rooted in your parents. And I thought it was really interesting how kind of right up front, we see this cast of racism. And, and then when the two women interact, it's almost like we're starting to peel back those layers for each other. One of the things that I liked about what you did was you weren't saying, I'm going to give you this lesson. I'm going to reveal these two people coming to different understandings through each other versus trying to outright tell us a fable. During the writing process, I probably didn't start out to really tell that much of the story about the racial issues and such. But it was something that I realized as I was writing it, what I saw as a kid. And like you said, I just wove it throughout uh, rather than just say, hey, we're going to delve into this situation. It was just a part of the day. It was the part of the times. Left over from slavery and all of that. And how our, our lives and our culture has changed over a period of time. It's just amazing to me when I see that. And I see it today and how far we've come and yet how far we still need to go. It's interesting that you said boiled because the word that I wanted to say was seething. And a lot of times when people say seething, they mean like, I'm really mad now. But what seething really means is that there's this underlying almost indescribable kind of distress. I mean, in this case, it's, it's anger. But the, 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 not only is, is, the, is the culture seething, but these women are seething because I feel like there wasn't a name for women's repression in the late 50s. It's like I, I'm waiting for the word that will let me express this emotion. And when you talk about how you started to write the book and you're like, well, I, I'm not going to make it about this, but it had to be about that. All of these tensions have to bubble through, especially if you're going to be true to your characters, because if you are a woman, if you are a housewife in 1962, you are almost certainly seething. Otherwise, you're not paying attention or you're not engaged. Part of the frustration comes in because, you know, you have the man, quote unquote, bringing home the bacon and the woman keeping the home, which is great. If you can make that happen, that's a wonderful thing. But as we know, we can't always do that. And I watched these two women 
try to branch out and get jobs, and that didn't happen right away. So they found other wacky ways to make some money, <laughs> some spending cash of their own, so we could go camping as a as right. a vacation. You know, we lived on a shoestring, but we didn't know that we were on a shoestring. We had a great time doing it. I can remember one specific um, situation, and it talks about it in the book, where my mother was, she mentions in the first chapter, trying to get her driver's license, trying to learn how to drive, and my dad trying to teach her, and it wasn't pretty, and it didn't work out well. She basically saved up her babysitting money because she took care of other people's kids and went and got driving lessons and got her driver's license without him knowing it, and then presented it to him. I can remember that vividly. They only had a few arguments, and that was one of them. <laughs> but um, to just show, not that she was afraid of him, but she didn't want the conflict, so she just did it on her own and then told him that she'd done it because it was something he'd tried to help her do, and just they couldn't do it together. There was really also no name for, like, standing up. Not even standing no. up for yourself. There's, there was just no name for taking ownership of your own life, of taking responsibility for for being an actor instead of letting things happen to you. Right. Both sides, the male and the female side, everybody had their roles to play. And that's what they were trying to do. But as you said, you know, the women's rights and all that were bubbling up. I don't remember too much conversation in regards to that as a kid, but I do remember seeing it happen just day by day. You're listening to So What's Your Story? And today we're talking with author Diana McDonough. You develop this relationship between Barb and Ellie, who are total strangers until chapter, and then they meet mm-hmm. in chapter one. To watch these two women interact, and to watch these two women both within themselves having some conflicts, and then having the comfort of a of the friendship to be able to express how they feel, get a little pushback, kind of go through a little bit of discovery of themselves and the world around them when you write fiction and you have a character who you're basing it on people, how much of mom and her friend bleeds through into Barb and Ellie? Well, when I first started writing this was probably about 16 years ago. And I started it in the first person because I thought, well, I'll just write it from the way I remember it. And it didn't take long for me to realize that I couldn't tell the story I wanted to tell because I was the kid and I didn't know everything that they knew. So I had to kind of set it aside let it percolate a little bit, and then go back to it because my mother had died about 17 years ago, so I just didn't feel like I could take that liberty of getting into her head quite that soon. Sure. So once I did that and was able to do that, I think that's when the book took on a life of its own and the characters started evolving like they did. I had seen it, but now I was living it as them. And as you know, you have to take liberties and add that fiction in there, and I hope Mom forgives me for that. (laughs) you decided that you wanted a little bit more background and you did correspondence courses to figure out how to get into writing, which is something that as far and as Jax is to Stephanie, the notion of writing a way for a correspondence course is, is to me. You know, I grew up and I remember as early as second grade loving to write and writing a story that my, my teacher really liked and somebody told my parents I was gifted or something dumb like that, which wasn't true. But, but anyway, I always loved to write and I loved to read as most, most, most writers do. They grow up reading and devouring books and that's what I did. And then I got married early, had kids, got a job and, and all of that came along, but I still wanted to write. So when this opportunity came along, initially I thought I wanted to write historical fiction, so I was going to write about the Willards of Washington, who I'm supposed to be related to. And I quickly realized that 
I didn't have time to do that while I was working the day job to do all that research. So I turned to this story. And I realized I needed more help because I wasn't talented enough to write a book. So I started, it was the days before the internet. I started taking correspondence classes through the mail. And I got the suggestions through reading Writer's Digest and a lot of different writer's magazines. Sure. So I started the correspondence courses and they'd give me my assignment and I'd send them off in the mail and then I'd get all excited when I get to the mailbox and find my manila envelope with my critique in there and I just absolutely loved it and learned a lot. And then I went to a lot of conferences, writers' conferences. Uh, Beta Ocean is a great one that I, I wouldn't miss and uh, learned a lot and just soaked up everything I could from other authors, critique groups, writing groups, all that good stuff. Yeah, I think that's one of the things, and we've kind of, Tony and I have talked about this a couple of times, is that writing is a pretty lonely process. It's just you and the paper, you and the computer typewriter, whatever you're using. It's a very lonely process. But then to sometimes you got to figure out, like, am I any good at this? Is, is what I've done worthwhile? Should I keep banging away at this? And so I think that instinct to want to connect with other writers, whether it be through a correspondence course or, you know, through sharing work and, or, you know, even like Beta Ocean, which is, I think, coming up soon. Yeah, March 11th. Yep, March 11th. Um, you know, those are good moments for us to kind of figure out what we're doing. Yes, indeed. It's just incredible how another writer can give you insight and spot things that you wouldn't see in a million years. I mean, I've read the story. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times. And every time I read it, I think, oh, I should have done this. Oh, I should have done that. Having other people critique my work has just made me so much better, I think. And, and it, it's enabled me to critique others. So it helps me to sharpen my skills by critiquing other people. And there's something to be said for the intellectual honesty it requires to be edited. I was actually talking about this with my daughter last night. I said, you know, a good editor will tell you something and you have to be you have to be willing to be wrong because when you say, Well, you just don't understand me, it's like, well, they're your audience. Right. You know, they right. have to they have to understand you. If you're not being clear, That's right. you can't say you just don't get me. Like when someone says, Well, you just don't understand, that's kind of the mark of someone who's not who's not willing to, to recognize that it's a two-way street. Like you are telling the story. That's that's part number one. But then I'm reading the story and I'm engaging with it. And if you can't engage me, then you haven't really done your job. You'll you'll also be taught that that first page has to have a hook, has to have something that's going to keep the reader turning the pages. And you know, I learn more as I go along. You know, you also need to have. Your chapter structured so that at the end of a chapter, they want to turn the page and read the next one and keep it going. So and that's things that I'm still learning to do. Like I said, just critiquing other people. Iron sharpens iron, in my opinion. Sure. And um, by hanging around people that write, we make each other sharper. Something I found very difficult, too, was I had some friends that were nice enough to read the story early on, and one friend told me she felt like she was reading little vignettes of things that were going on, and I'm like, all right, I need to go back. Does this facilitate the story or not? Do I need to tell this scene, even though it's funny and it shows how my mom and and her friend were? Do I really need it? No, you don't. But I tucked them away for later. There you go. You'll hear it sooner enough. Yeah, it just means they didn't fit right there. Our, Our friend Jeff Smith, who's been on the show a couple times, Mm-hmm. So the way that he does, the way he self-edits is he goes back and anything that he really likes, he knows it's got to go. Oh, no. He's like, I was too oh, clever. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing you mentioned was about how you're structuring the chapters. One of the things that was unique with what you did was you alternated the perspectives. 
each lady kind of tells a different chapter. Tell us a little bit about that decision making process for you. I just wanted to get into their heads. I just wanted to see what they were thinking and and tell it from their perspective. And like I said, they were so very different. And that's what worried me too, that I wasn't differentiating the characters enough that maybe they sounded too much like each other. But I don't think, from what I've been, the feedback I've been getting, I'm, I don't think that's the case. So it was just a matter of that. I would play 60s music, trying to get into the mood to put me back to where they were. I've done that too. And I've mm-hmm. written a period piece, you know, <laughs> like there was a piece that I wrote about, I was a murder in 1940. And so I just went and just listened to every bit of like Glenn Miller and kind of immerse yourself in a moment, really. Mm-hmm. It does. It transports you. And the, the sequel to Stuck in the Onesie is going to be staged in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So getting out my uh, my music. And break out the Bee Gees. Turning it up. Yeah, break out the Bee Gees, right. <laughs> now, you, you gave me the impression with your last answer about alternating chapters. That Did you find it easier to get into one voice in one chapter? For example, do you think it would have been a little more difficult to have the perspective of each woman in the same chapter. Maybe that's why I did it. I, you know, Unconsciously, that could be why, because it was easier for me to just jump into Ellie and, and be Ellie for a while and then flip over to Barb and do it that way. Because th- they were so very different, yet alike. Their sense of humor was similar, but their way of getting at it was different. One was an introvert, one was an extrovert. And I think also maybe it helped allow the reader to see, because when we're we're in Barb, we're getting it through her. But then when we see Ellie, we're almost getting like the flip side of that coin. Was it almost a chance to deliver different information to the reader as well? Exactly. I wanted to show the reactions because they were so different. I wanted to show their reactions and how they reacted to different situations. You know, the marriages were different. The kids were different. Everything, the locations of where they lived initially were different. Ellie's first chapter I had critiqued by my critique group and the one woman was very astute and picked up and said I don't understand you know she's from Cambridge yet she's the liberated one she's not the one with the the bad prejudices and such I said well she was transplanted there she's originally from the DC area so but she had picked up on the fact that here she lives in Cambridge yet she's the one that's with it so it was just that it was just showing where they were and letting being able to show Ellie's perception of living in Cambridge as a transplanted person I mean I had that situation when I was very young and when I got married he moved me to West Virginia Exactly. Top of a hill. Wow. Top of a mountain. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. After growing up in Washington, D.C., so you're talking culture shock in reverse. For sure. And I found out as I was writing this book that Ellie had that same culture shock when she was transplanted to Cambridge from Washington, D.C. So I could relate to that and get into that a little bit. And it's interesting because there's a fine line. On one hand, you want to make the reader or at least in, in, engage the reader enough that they're going from chapter to chapter. But you also want to ask their trust and say, well... Yeah, I'll explain it. Give me a second. Hang with me you know, a bit. And, yeah. and that's an interesting balance to try and strike, making the decision between what you are going to give them to make them go forward and what you're going to withhold from them also to make them go forward. Right, right. That's a, that's a tough balance to find, but it's, it's, the, it's what I love about writing. It's what I love about novel writing is that I can work on hanging that thread throughout. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is relationships between women because our last author also wrote about the relationships between women over time. And that's something that is really kind of alien to me as I'm, I'm the oldest of six boys and boys brothers have very 
different relationships from the way that sisters have. Male friends have very different relationships from the way that female friends have these because they're more likely to have a sisterly bond. So a, a brotherly bond is very... Shallow is the Superficial. best way. Superficial. Yeah. Shallow, shallow is the best way to put it, but also I guess maybe super honest. Like I'm punching you or I'm hugging you, and there's not a lot of. But you don't know, yeah, yeah. yeah. in between. Where whereas whereas the sisterly relationship between women who are friends can be like a sisterly relationship between women who are sisters, which is maybe they're going to stab one another and maybe they're not, and mm-hmm. no one knows for sure. Well, you know, I have a theory, and one day I think I'm going to write a book about it. I think men are like dogs and women are like cats. Hmm. You can kick a dog and it'll be back licking your hand 30 seconds later. You kick a cat, you won't see it for two days. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Women are like the same way. Guys can kick each other and next day they're playing golf and having a good time. If I stab you in the back or say something about you behind your back, Stephanie, you're not going to talk to me for a while. Yeah. yeah. You know? it's, it's just how we are. It's a bit more emotional. Yes. It's almost like how... How how deep does it run? Yeah. I think sometimes comes into it. You're listening to So What's Your Story? And today we're talking with author Diana McDonough. For you, when, when you're writing these two women, and, and then you have these two children who are kind of based on you. You mm-hmm. said earlier you made the decision that you couldn't tell Barb and Ellie's story from the child's perspective. Right. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to the realization you had to flip that? Well, I was trying to tell it from the child's perspective. I mean, for instance, the marital issues, stuff like that. Unless I heard an argument or something, I didn't know they existed. And that's what I learned from my writing classes is you can't tell that from the first person because you're the kid and you're not the mother. So that's when I had to make that switch because I just, there were gaps that as a kid I couldn't fill in. So really that decision helped to be more honest. Oh, absolutely. But like I said, I had to wait until I felt like I could take that leap and get into my mom's head without ticking her off too bad. (laughs) (laughs) She'll tell me when I get there, trust me. (laughs) No doubt. (laughs) And so after having worked on the book for a while, you, you had to get it published. Can you take us through that process? Uh, Yeah. Well, I was in the critique group, and uh, one of the ladies showed up with her novel one day from Create Space through Amazon, and I thought, okay, it's time. I had written this, like I said, over the course of at least 10 years and put it on the shelf because I was still working the day job. I worked for Ecolab selling chemicals, the legal kind of soap. (laughs) Well, you are from D.C. in the 60s. I think we had to clarify. (laughs) I don't remember a whole lot, but no, 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 I'm just kidding. So I was working the day job and just writing on weekends and evenings. I had a husband that was gracious enough to give me my space on the weekends to do my writing. So after I was done, I shelved it and told myself, okay, I'm going to learn all the marketing I can from working at Ecolab. I just tried to gather all that marketing knowledge that I could. So when I decided to flip the switch was when I retired. I retired in June of this past year, and I thought, well, when I retire is when I'll market the book. I started working with Create Space back in around November and had it published by January 15th. They were very good to work with, very easy to work with, made me feel confident in what was going on. They helped me with the cover, they helped me with the manuscript and editing. I went through two rounds of editing with them. And the cover is so cool. One thing I did insist on was I had the DC skyline put on the back. I couldn't fit it on the front because it was too busy. 
but I wanted people to know it was about Washington, D.C., so I was hoping if somebody picked it up off of a shelf and saw that and they're from that area, they might take a closer look. Yeah, that's, it's definitely an iconic skyline that they've, that they've yeah, incorporated. It's very cool. Job. Very cool. And now getting it into bookstores and uh, getting it sold and doing the actual marketing, what was that like? And where did you start and what did you learn? Well, what I am starting and what I am learning. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's what I did today. I slept all the way up to Rehoboth and back hitting some bookstores. So it's, and I've been to Baltimore, I've been to Florida. So everywhere I go, I use it as a chance to stop in an independent bookstore. And all those years of selling chemicals on the streets, kind of uh, helps me along with that. Um, you go in and you just find the person to talk to, talk to the decision maker, check them out on the website before you go in and see how what type of materials they like to have on their shelves, see if you're a good fit. Go in and talk to the person, put your pitch on them, which is what they say in sales, which I hate the word, but it is what it is. You try and get it on the shelves, you give it to them on consignment, and so it's a lot of legwork on the author's part, and that's what I'm doing right now is trying to get the Ocean City Rehoboth area carrying the book so that people go onto the beach and grab a quick read, and hopefully word of mouth will get up. I had go to Zumba a couple times a week, and I handed out postcards around Christmas time, and I had a lady come up to me last week going... I loved your book, blah, blah, blah. And she says, I had to, I think you need to put a disclaimer on there, though. I'm like, oh, my gosh, why? Oh, man. She said, you need to have some tissues close by. Uh, I was like, yes. I never realized that authors love making people cry. <laughs> but I do. And every time I hear it or see it on Facebook, I get all excited. Another thing that I bug people to death, my poor friends, when they finish reading, I ask everybody to post a, a review on Amazon because that helps drive your exposure on the Amazon website. And the reviews on Amazon have been pretty good. Yeah, they've been they, great. They've been, they've been great. I mean, I've been real thrilled with what I've been seeing and excited. And um, yeah, I just hope somebody else think so too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it definitely seems like the people are connecting with these women. They really are. They really are. I've had people say they, they hate to see the book end. They've really fallen in love with the characters, which really makes my heart sing because that's, that was my biggest wish was that they would fall in love with Barbanelli like I did. And so next up, you said the kids? Yeah, there's a sequel, Karen and Ginger, very loosely based on truth, I might add, but a lot of the characteristics are the same. Uh, one of the characters ends up living in Jamaica, becomes a rock star, nice. <laughs> meets Bob Marley. So we're, we'll be doing some fun stuff there. They say, write what you know. And I've been doing mission work and vacationing in Jamaica for 20 some years. So I know the landscape, I know the people, and I hope to weave that in pretty well to give you all a nice little trip to Jamaica. On there me. you go. Yeah. I'll take it. Mm -hmm. I have it. Um, and so... Uh, you, you, you said you had some book signings coming up. Yes, I do. Let's see. On April 1st, I'll be at the News Center in Easton from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. April 8th, I'll be at the Shirley Grace Pregnancy Center Gala doing a book sale and signing, and, and that's at the Ocean City Convention Center. Then on the 15th of April, I will be at Greetings and Readings in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Fantastic. And I'll also make sure we put those dates and locations and everything. I'll make sure that goes up on the podcast page. Uh, that'll be dedicated to you. Thank you. Absolutely. Do you know what I like? You like limericks. I do like limericks. Uh, so if you would like to send us a word, we will send you a limerick or a haiku. It's uh, one of the tropes of the show. It's something that we're really secretly very proud of. 
Um, so if you'd like to participate, we would love to have you participate. And how do they do that? Yep. If you just go to so what's your story podcast.com, there's a contact us page and you can drop in your name, email. There's a little uh, text box where if you pick a word, I'll put it into a haiku. I'll make Tony put it into a limerick. We're going to put it on a postcard, slap a stamp on it, and put it in the mail, just like old times. And one of the things that I've been meaning to say over the last couple weeks and keep forgetting is that when you guys are getting these uh, postcards, if you would take take an Instagram picture of them and tag us, we would love to know that we know that we're sending them. We don't know that you're getting them. So, And we don't want to make you like our, our prisoner pen pals. But if you wanted to just tag us with the little pictures on on the So What's Your Story podcast, we would love to know that they're know that they're hitting their mark and um, our friend michael day from snow hill gave us a bunch of snow hill uh postcards that we'll be using in the in the next in the next round of postcards so please keep the uh keep the love coming because we love to see it yep and if you want to go ahead and uh follow us on itunes you can also follow us on social media uh we have an instagram account and we also have a twitter so and all that's uh all those links are there on the so what's your story podcast page Excellent. All right. Now, Stephanie, this is the part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, Diana, thank you so much for coming. I, it's thank been a you. delight. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate your time. Sure thing. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find the past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a great review. Tell your story.